Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners, 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEWORLD at manscaped.com. There is a strong finders-keepers mentality amongst people that have Nazi-looted artwork. They don't want to give it back. It's greed. It's insensitivity to the, to the families that had these things taken from them. It's about regaining a small part of their life, their history, before the Nazis took it away from them and murdered many of their, their relatives. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's the art detective who hunts stolen masterpieces and who reunites works of art with their rightful owners years after they have been looted. From lost works by artists like Picasso or Warhol to flash designer watches worth more than €100,000, Chris Marinello of Art Recovery International has brought home more than a half a billion dollars worth of missing goods over his three decades in the business. Today, he tells me about his incredible career negotiating with a heady mix of rogue collectors, Nazi thieves and organised criminals looking to wash their dirty money. We talk daring heists, missing classics and the hunt for James Bond's Aston Martin. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. If I was to steal a, you know, very well-known Van Gogh, for example, let's just say I decided that my day job wasn't paying me the money and I thought this was slightly better than drug dealing because I'm not really into drug dealing. What would I do with it? Where would I go? How would I attempt to sell it? Or, you know, would I find a little underworld collectors that maybe I'd be able to, to flog it to? Well, in the, old, in the old days, it used to be relatively easy. This is pre-internet. You know, you could steal something from 
Ireland or the UK and then move it to the United States and or vice versa and, you know, pretty much get away with selling it. Um, nowadays, the reports of any museum or major theft are so widespread that within hours, everybody knows that you're dealing with stolen property. So it makes it a lot more difficult nowadays. But it still is possible to sell something uh, that is recently stolen. However, the more high-profile a work of art, the Van Goghs, the Picassos, the, 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 the high-end jewelry, is more difficult. You know, the, and the criminals don't always think about this when they're committing their crime. They think, oh, yeah, we'll steal something and then we'll sell it. Well, it, it, it's just not that easy. And, and I don't like to give criminals a hell of a lot of credit for thinking because if they, if they were more intelligent, they'd have proper jobs. So I've started a bit big there. Say, for example, I stole something less well-known, but all the same, pretty valuable. Is there particular countries I should go to to try and sell it? Is there particular auction rooms? Or do I do it on a sort of an underground private market? Does that exist? Well, once the, the objects are stolen, the criminals will wait and hope that an insurance company will be announced in the newspaper. Or they'll call me because, you know, a lot of people know that I represent most of the fine art insurance companies worldwide. And they'll ask if there's a reward. They may try to ransom the objects. I mean, your, your listeners need to know the difference between ransom and reward. And you can ask me that later if you like. Um, but then they will try to flog it off, as you say. And for example, just this week, I've got a uh, half a million euro watch that was stolen from a gentleman in Saint-Tropez. And within days, the watch ended up in Belgium. And the criminal or a criminal was writing saying, you know, I can get the watch back, but you have to pay me in advance. We want Bitcoin, blah, blah, blah. You know, and then after that, it goes to Hong Kong or to the UAE, Saudi Arabia, you know, these are, or to the UK, where, where there's a market for these high-end watches. So there are, there are different patterns depending on what the object is, whether it's a car, a watch, fine art, antiquities, you know, there's, but there is, there are distinct patterns. Now, I take it these are organized thefts. Your guy in Saint-Tropez didn't get into his swimming togs and leave a watch of that value on the beach along with his, his underpants. You know, these, the, this watch has presumably been stolen in, in, in a way it's been targeted, it's been identified and stolen. Am I right? Well, they are organized, but not as well organized as you would think. I mean, we may just be dealing with a small band of criminals that happen to know that Richard Mier watches can, you know, be sold or, 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 or trade at a value of 100,000 to 5 million. And so what they'll do is they'll target individuals. These are very prominent watches. So they can see them a mile away. They look like a, a, a Formula One race car on your wrist. And what they do is they approach the victim uh, distract him, cut the band, 
and run off into a crowd, usually on a moped or a motorcycle, and then insert the objects into their chain of fences uh, in order to convert the object to cash. So, you know, these high-end watches, uh, they're watching people come in and out of Harrods in the UK. They're they're in Saint-Tropez, they're in Cannes. They're all the places where high net worth individuals like to show off their their high-end watches. A lot of the guys I write about wear those kind of watches and collect them. Um, I presume you wouldn't be stealing them off some of them, but uh, nonetheless, they are an item of bling that is maybe seen as, you know, something that maybe sort of people involved in organised crime and drug dealing, they'd like to have possessed. So there must be a big market for them. There's a huge market for this. But keep in mind, the market is tampered by the fact that they may be wearing something stolen. Now, these watches come with a certificate of authenticity and and the certificate that you've purchased the one and only original watch, one and only serial number. So if you don't have those papers that travel with the watch, you have a stolen watch. So they're not going to get, you know, 500,000 or a million for the watch. It's going to travel and trade at a significantly lower value without those papers. I've read somewhere, Chris, that you've recovered something like 500 million euro worth of stolen art, which would include actual art that we hang on the walls, uh, cars, because you deem them art, works of art as well, and these watches. And I presume other sort of artifacts and, um, you know, ornaments or whatever. But, sir, how did you get into this? And do you remember your first recovery? Was it something that... uh, you know, led you on the path to becoming the most famous recoverer, shall we call you, in, in the world? Well, I'm, a, I'm an attorney by trade. And I, before I went to law school, I went to art school. And uh, it's been well established uh, by family and friends that I was not particularly talented uh, in, in, in creating artwork. So I should go to law school. And, you know, it was a way... I developed a practice where I represented galleries and dealers and collectors, and and it was a way of staying in the art world while practicing my profession, which is the legal profession. And um, the very first case I handled was an art gallery that was having some difficulties and asked me if I would help them. And of course, they were having financial difficulties. So when when I concluded the case successfully for them, they couldn't pay me. So they paid me in artwork. And and that has been a recurring theme throughout my career, Uh, sometimes welcome and sometimes not always welcome. Uh, You know, sometimes you you want cash and you don't want any more artwork. Uh, And sometimes the artwork that's been offered to me is just inappropriate for, for, you know, I've had some very strange Contemporary artists offer me nudes that I could never hang anywhere. Uh, or, or, so I, I, you know, I really didn't want them, but I didn't know how to say no. So, um, but anyway, uh, so, so that's that's really how I got into it. And the business of the theft of art, I mean, it goes back to the beginning of time, really. But in modern times, or more modern times, I think anybody who goes around, you know, art galleries and cities they visit, etc., will always come across. Um, works that may have been transferred in ownership over the time of the Nazis. It's a very significant period in in art history when they pillaged and plundered 
And, you know, some of them kept stolen artworks themselves and, and others, uh, they sold them on, didn't they? And they, they moved around the world. But tell me a little bit about that and your own work in recovering some of these works of art that were, were, were taken by the Nazis. It's a very big part of what we do. I work with some brilliant provenance researchers. And the first stage is to identify a work that has a gap in its provenance and to research who had that object prior to the Nazis coming to power and who did they, they, they loot it from. We have, because whenever I approach someone, whether it's a museum or a private collector, and say, look, you have a Nazi-looted work of art, of course, the first thing they say is, well, no, 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 it can't be the same. So I have to prove that the object is the same. Once I prove that it's the same, the next thing they say is, well, how can you prove that it's looted and it belonged to this family? Well, that's a, a, another enormous effort to, to show that. But once we have those two, two things down, the next thing they say is, well, under the law of my particular jurisdiction, we acquired it in good faith. We didn't know it was looted and we're going to try to keep it. So it, it's really very difficult to get these works of art back. And there is a... Uh, um, a strong finders-keepers mentality amongst people that have Nazi-looted artwork. They don't want to give it back. It's greed. It's insensitivity to the, to the families that had these things taken from them. You know, I've had people insult me and my clients by saying, oh, your clients have so much money. Why, why, would, they, why would they want something back? It's all about the money. No, it's not about the money. It's about regaining a small part of their life, their history, before the Nazis took it away from them and murdered many of their, their relatives. So it's really a difficult subject in, 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 in my work because I encounter governments, museums, collectors, dealers that just don't want to comply. They don't want to cooperate. They take great umbrage. They, they hide Nazi-looted art. And then they complain and say, well, we shouldn't be dealing with this anymore 75 years after the war. Well, if you wouldn't hide it, and if you'd come forward and cooperate and deal with these things, then maybe someday there could be an end to these claims. But not if you're hiding them behind a sofa. And with the Nazis, I mean, I know other regimes have done similar, you know, I mean, we've seen in Syria and, and other places like that, art has been stolen, damaged or whatever. But did the Nazis, was there a particular amount of artwork within the within Germany and Poland and other countries they were involved in? Or did they specifically see the value of it? Or, or why, why were they so prolific in stealing art? Well, Number one, they were trying to eradicate the Jewish people from their land and their culture and their history. They were trying to wipe out the Jewish people in, in every sense of the word. And their collections and, and what, what things meant to them were, was just something the Nazis had to get rid of while they were murdering the population. Now, the Nazis were not contemporary art collectors. They didn't like the Impressionists, it wasn't their thing. Matisse, Picasso, these were degenerate artists compared to the old masters and more Germanic and Aryan artwork. So, but they knew it had value. So what they would do is they would accumulate and, and loot 
Matisse's and Picasso's and Degas and whatnot, and then they would trade them for things that they found more attractive, more Germanic, things that they would hang and that would be symbolic of of the rise of, of Germany. So it is estimated that hundreds of thousands of objects were looted by the Nazis. And everything, it's not just Picasso's and, and, and Matisse's, but Torah scrolls and, and important silver objects that were used in, in religious worship that were just destroyed or still missing. Mm. You worked with, I think, Paul Rosenberg's family. Um, he was an art dealer in Paris and... 400 works of art belonging to him were stolen by the Nazis. They got a lot of them back. That's right. And it wasn't easy getting them back. Some of these pieces went to Switzerland and Paul Rosenberg himself went to Switzerland and and had to, you know, encounter these dealers and say, look, you have my artwork. And they said, oh, sure. Well, if you want to buy it back from us, that's fine. And he had to go to court, you know, to, 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 to get these artworks back. And then when he won... He went back to the dealers and said, okay, now if you want to buy them from me, you can buy them from me. I mean, after all, he was an art dealer. Now, I still work for that family, and we're trying to locate uh, a great number of works that are still missing. And I have a number of cases pending where I'm running into some difficulty with the German government that does not want to cooperate and dealers who do not want to cooperate in identifying the location of these Nazi looted works of art. Still. 75 years after the war, we're still fighting to get these works of art back. And if one of those works of art that you're looking for happened to be in a private collection and the individual maybe didn't realise and, you know, somehow maybe they put it up for auction, it was catalogued and you recognised that it was one of the works you're looking for. Does that individual, if they innocently had purchased it or it had come into their possession, do they get an insurance for it or do they have to kind of willingly give it up without any uh, financial, you know, anything financial for well, it? It's it's not that easy. It's quite complicated because, you know, mm-hmm. there's no insurance involved unless they have bought title insurance for their collection. And that's very rare. The, um, the When you say, did they buy it innocently? Well... It's really hard to determine what's innocent and what's looking the other way. I mean, when, you know, I have a Degas that belonged to Paul Rosenberg that is currently being hidden from me in in Switzerland. And the possessor's provenance is, well, it was purchased in Paris in 1942. So therefore, you know, we didn't know. Well, of course, the whole world knew that Paris was occupied by the Nazis in 1942. So that's not a particularly good provenance. It's not a good argument. So, uh, you know, some, there, yes, there are a few people that say we had no idea. But those mm-hmm. are the people that tend to cooperate and say, oh, my God, I didn't want to buy something that was looted from another family before they were murdered. Those people tend to cooperate. It's the ones who are you know, different shades of innocence. Uh, we didn't know or we didn't know you, you could research these things. But don't forget, you know, a little bit of due diligence could turn up these claims. They've been researched since the war. And people have been hiding and looking the other way since the war. So it's, 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 it's really quite complicated. 
I'm going to ask you a question that'll be difficult for you to answer. And it's like somebody asking me, where do you get your stories from? Um, But where do you find out or where do you source these paintings or how do you realise that these paintings have been stolen? And do you work backwards or do you work forwards? Do people come to you and say they're trying to track down this painting? Clearly, if there's been an obvious theft in a museum or something, you're going to try source those. But... Do you kind of go through the catalogues and Sotheby's and Christie's and Adams even and and all these various auction houses and and look for names or painters that maybe are on your book somewhere that are missing? Well, we work very closely with a number of databases, including our own, the Art Claim database. Uh, We work with the FBI and Interpol and, and the Academy databases and when something is is looted or stolen, it gets placed on those databases. And then we expect that the trade uh, will check those databases to, to make sure they're not selling anything that is stolen. And the, the these when they're checked against the database, that's how matches arise. Oh my God, uh, a painting at Sotheby's is being offered for sale and it happens to match something that was stolen. Uh, that's how they come to fruition. Uh, but at the same time, I get people calling me saying that they had collections that were looted or stolen and, and they need us to try to track them down. Uh, they don't know if they were destroyed or not. Sometimes people contact me when they've actually found their object. They, they don't know what to do next because they've called their local police force and the local police force doesn't have an art squad. And they're like, well, we don't know what to do. Call, call somebody else. Um, so there's many different ways that that cases come to us. So it seems to me that the art world has always been a pretty good place to launder money. And if you need to get rid of money, it seems to me that it's a pretty good way of, you know, keeping a couple of million on your wall and maybe, you know, it's not a giant big house or it's not a big flashy car. It's probably a cleverer way maybe to launder money. Does uh, Obviously, it has attracted organised criminals, which was why I, I was interested in talking to you in the first place, because we seem to be getting more and more stories of these very big works of art being found along with assets uh, in homes belonging to mafiosa and and. Russian oligarchs and all the rest of it. So it's been a long time a place where criminals have gone to hide their money, hasn't it? But is it becoming more and more attractive because they're making more and more money? Or does the art world sometimes itself turn turn a blind eye to the type of clientele that are doing business in the auction houses? Well, for the longest time, the art world was turning a blind eye to what was going on. And now we're seeing more and more money laundering statutes getting put into place in the UK, in the United States, making it a requirement for for people to ask not only where the art came from, but where the money came from and and who are these people that you're dealing with. And, And the art world's been silent for so long with respect to that, that this is why criminals have been using art as a way to launder money. It's, it's small. It could be, a, you know, some of these watches that I deal with are worth one to five million euros in, in, in the palm of your hand. 
And, and so it's, you know, of course, it's attractive because you can get in, on an airport, you know, in and out of a, a country relatively quickly. No one asks any questions. Same thing with artwork, you know, uh, artwork that is that is hung on the wall. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's an attractive asset class for criminals. And but like I like I said, the the, the jurisdictions are now coming around and wising up and trying to shut this asset class down. But in the US, we're seeing some of the uh, the auction houses are funding lobby groups to try and, you know, make sure that the, the legislation isn't too draconian because they do want to be able to offer that service of confidentiality. They want to be able to sell pieces of art without identifying who owns them. Um, there's all these shell companies surrounding the purchasing and the selling of it. Um, do you know, is there enough legitimate earners to keep the the wheel turning on, on on these, you know, pieces of art with such high values? Well, I mean, listen, I, I do believe that there is a space for anonymity. You know, I, I recover a lot of artwork for Hollywood stars, old face names, one head of state in Europe. And it really is nobody else's business, uh, you know, what's in his collection or her collection and, and, and whatnot and what they're doing with their artwork, as long as they're complying with the law. But when anonymity is used to keep victims from getting information on their stolen or looted objects, that's when it's crossed the line and it's being used for the wrong purpose. And so a lot of these auction houses do have um, due diligence departments now, but only the big auction houses can afford that. You know, the small auction houses in, in, in you know, the rural UK, they, they can't afford this. And, and it is becoming problematical. So there needs to be a middle ground, in other words. As, as with anything else, you know, the extremes yeah. are never good. The middle ground is where you want to be. Now, on your website, you have a vast amount of information on pieces of art that you have recovered. And you can go in and you can read up little pieces of information on a few of them. There was something I noticed because there's so many of them and I was, I got stuck. I got dug into it actually the other day for hours and then I had to take my head out of it because the day was going to be gone and I'd be still looking at these paintings um, and watches and uh, other artefacts. But um I noticed, firstly, 2012 seemed to be a very good year. Maybe you can tell me if that um, there was a reason for that. But there was a few of them maybe you could expand upon if you can. Um, there was a one I found interesting called Winter Landscape uh, by Jean-Joseph van Goyen, a painting that was um, from the artist who was around in the late 1500s, early 1600s. And it was stolen in 99, am I correct, and offered for sale in Sotheby's in 2012. Like, where was it in the meantime? Well, most likely hanging on the wall of someone who did not know it was stolen. I mean, that's, you know, that's why it takes almost a generation sometimes to recover these things. I mean, the, the, you know, the criminal may have passed it on to somebody or sold it to somebody. That person hangs it on the wall and it just hangs there for decades. And then, you know, the family decides they're no longer love the piece or somebody dies and leaves it to an estate. And then it gets put into the, 
into a major auction house. Now, most criminals are not going to put a stolen object knowingly into the Sotheby's or Christie's because, you know, they, they know that's going to get spotted. So, you know, it's, it, the inclination is they didn't know, and now they know, and now they got to deal with it. Mm-hmm. This one, I think um, there's a note with it that the seller was found to be guilty of attempted murder. Oh, yeah. This was a very interesting case because the, uh, the seller was not a particularly nice person. I mean, they claimed that I was bullying them. You know, they actually made a complaint to the police that I was bullying them when, in fact, uh, they themselves were involved in uh, putting a gun to a dealer's head and clicking it, not knowing whether it would go on or go off or not. Uh, But this is the type of intimidation that this individual used. So their complaints were really unfounded. They had zero credibility and were ultimately forced to give up the piece. And um, and was this a situation where this piece may have hung innocently or perhaps it was transferred on the black market to somebody of lesser morals, maybe? Well, we think that at some point it was, it was hung legitimately in a home and then they had the, the consigner had checked and discovered it was stolen and that's when they started shopping it around surreptitiously. So, you know, if you look at my website, there's just, you know, these are the, these are the stories that I'm allowed to publish. And mm-hmm. sometimes the names are left out to protect the innocent. Uh, but there's a lot more that I'm not allowed to discuss. And, and usually it's the more expensive pieces where many sets of lawyers come out of the woodwork as part of a deal. And number one, confidentiality has to prevail. And so we can't publicize them. So these case studies are a bit of a teaser. Yeah, and of course, I'm sure it's easier to settle than go into court for years on end. In in any jurisdiction, it's always easier to come to an agreement, isn't it? The art world hates to litigate these cases because my colleagues and attorneys who litigate these things charge enormous fees by the hour, with all Mm -hmm. due respect. Uh, They are time-consuming and... Uh, uncertain result because a lot of judges have no idea what they're doing when it comes to artwork and art cases. And the worst thing about litigating these things is the publicity because legal cases are public knowledge. And in the art world, if you're seen as being litigious or handling a stolen object, your reputation is destroyed. You will not be able to work again as a, as a dealer or an art advisor. So that, you know, it, it's real, it really behooves them to, to settle these cases discreetly. And, and that's what I'm there for. There was a Morris Prendergast painting, The Promenade, which was stolen in 1970 in the New York Museum. And it was also recovered in 2012. Is it a bit like when a dog goes missing for a couple of months and returns, but can't tell you where he's been or what has happened or what adventures? And you can kind of you know, imagine what, where that painting has been and what it has seen? Yeah, a lot of people ask me this question, um, and it is, un- you know, unfortunately, I don't always know where the painting was. I don't always catch the criminal. In fact, most of the time, we don't catch the criminal. If that's up to law enforcement. They're the ones with the guns and the badges. I mean, if I catch a criminal, what am I going to do with them? You know, it's, 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 it, it's, it's up to law enforcement to, to, to deal with the criminal themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm more concerned with getting the artwork back to the victim or to their insurance company. 
So, you know, while we have been successful in, in helping law enforcement lock up a, a number of art thieves or fraudsters, both men and women over the years, um, most of the time we don't know who stole the object, what happened in the years after it, just what happened when it was first sighted again. And of course, a lot of these um, very famous paintings could be stolen and held by criminals in order, like it's sort of a get out of jail card from the Monopoly board so as they can negotiate their way out of trouble in the future by producing these things. Um, in the Netherlands, there's been over the past few decades, 30 Van Gogh stolen. All have been recovered, I, I, I believe. And uh, does that include the painting that was stolen in Amsterdam in April 2020 when the museums had locked down um, the Parsonage's Garden, I think it's called? Was that Has that been found or is it still missing? I believe that one is still missing. You know, that is true that criminals will acquire artwork hoping that they can use it as a bargaining chip. That's worked for decades, not just with artwork, but, you know, ratting out a particular criminal, knowing where that criminal is, trading that information for a lesser sentence. I mean, that's been going on, you know, for a very long time, and it still goes on today. So if criminals cannot find a buyer, because let's face it, there's very few criminals that are art collectors, okay? That whole Dr. No theory, I dismiss readily that they are collecting artwork you know, in some underground lair for their own pleasure. They, they try to cash it out as quickly as possible. And when they can't, they try to move it on to the underworld, black market, where artwork will trade at a fraction of its true value, or it's acquired by a more senior criminal who will use it as a bargaining chip, as you just mentioned. And recently we've been reporting um, here about on Crime World about Raphael Imperiale, a member of the Camorra Mafia who was arrested in Dubai. In 2016, two Van Gogh paintings were found hidden in the walls of his bathroom wrapped in some uh, bedsheets. And I believe that he had attempted to use them as a bargaining tool himself. But nonetheless, he's now been, uh, he's in custody in the United Arab Emirates and I'm sure is going to be brought back to Naples, uh, where he's facing major, um, major, uh, a major criminal trial. But well before him, a guy by the name of Ronald Belciano in Philadelphia, um, obviously Italian. I didn't uh, quite research his background, but I'm just guessing there. Um, 14 paintings were found on the walls of his house and 33 more in storage. Picasso's, Renoir's, Salvador Dali's. He was a criminal. He was an organised crime boss. And uh, I think when they were found, that was a first, really, for law enforcement. They didn't realise that organised criminals were, were collecting these things. But since then, they've been finding them more and more, haven't they? Law enforcement worldwide has uncovered gangs who are handling stolen property, whether it's artwork, watches, cars, whether it's uh, from Italy, France, to the Balkans, to Belgium. I mean, there are networks of organized groups dealing in stolen property. There's no doubt about that. When they're caught, 
in the two examples that you mentioned, most recently, Mr. Imperiale said he is was a he bought the painting. He didn't you know he didn't buy he didn't steal it, but he bought it for the love of art. Well, you know you got to take that with a uh, you know a little grain of, of salt because if it really was the love of art, would it be wrapped in a sheet and hung behind a toilet? No, it would be hanging on the wall where he would appreciate it in his underground lair. That's why I just don't believe any of these people that say, well, you know, we're acquiring stolen art because we just love it. We just don't want to ask questions where it came from. What happens in those instances is their associates um, will eventually rat them out and say, oh, I saw this stolen painting on the wall of Mr. Imperiali's house. I mean, he can't risk that. You know, part of, 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 of being a crime lord from not knowing firsthand, but it, it is showing off, you know, is bragging rights. And you can't show off. You can't brag that you've got these things. You can't have them hanging on the wall. That's why they're wrapped in towels and hanging behind a toilet. So uh, I just don't buy the argument, I bought it for the love of the artwork. He bought it because he thought he would cash out and use it to launder money. That's that's the truth. For sure. And famously here, the general Martin Cahill stole artwork um, that he couldn't, he actually could never get rid of. Some of it has never been found and some of it has. Um, our mutual acquaintance, Anthony Amore and the Gardner Museum in, in Boston, and I spoke to him on the podcast uh, about his his book, and um, in general about that robbery. That probably is one of the most famous museum robberies of all time, is it? Sure. I mean, these paintings are worth half a billion, if not more. Do you think they'll ever be found, Chris? I do think they'll be found. I have been talking for years about what I think needs to be done. And it's not just increasing the reward from 5 million to 10 million. I believe that whoever possesses these items needs to feel comfortable that they will not be arrested, that there will be no sting operation. You know, there are people out there, lunatics claiming that the reward is fake. It's not fake. But there's Mm -hmm. that sense that if somebody comes forward and, and, and brings these out in the open, that they're going to be stung. And I have offered you know, to Anthony and to the museum with approval from the FBI to, to, to serve as a intermediary pro bono um, to exchange the paintings for the reward money. I mean, I think that's the only way that this is ever going to happen, that, that there's somebody in between, whether it's me or somebody else, that will give that security to the possessors of these works of art. The thieves are gone, according to the FBI. So we're now talking about possessors, someone who knows where these objects are and where 10 million is just not enough to risk, you know, this this supposed sting that they, they think is going to happen. And of course, the longer these thefts go on and the more high profile they are, like the Gardner theft, there's all sorts of theories and rogues come forward and claim that they know and they there's been, Whitey Bulger has been thrown into that mix. I don't think there's any credibility to that and and others have also um, thrown themselves into the mix when there's no reason, uh, you know, there is no, there's no logical explanation that they should be there other than maybe for fame or to attach themselves to the story. And 
again, it is a story that is has made it onto a Netflix show that some like, some don't. Um, an incredible story, a fascinating one and the final chapter out there somewhere. And no doubt the final chapter will be as fascinating as 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 the, the whole thing has been all along. Um, just to finish, Chris, I want you to tell me about James Bond's 1964 Aston Martin from Goldfinger. Um, so this is a car that's worth a couple of million at this stage. And it went missing from a hangar at a Florida airport. You're involved. You're, you're looking for it. I think you believe you have a theory. You know where it is. Well, I represent the insurance company that paid out on the loss back in 1997. And this car was uh, stored in a storage unit at the Boca Raton, Florida airport, which is a private airport, private jets. Uh, it was pre-September uh, 11th. So um, we're talking about a time when logs were not kept as, as thoroughly as they are now, as who's coming and going and what planes are coming and going. Uh, somebody very unceremoniously dragged the car from its storage unit to where a cargo plane could have been, and off it went. Hasn't been seen since. So uh, my client, the insurer, has been cooperating with people who uh, recently the, the Spyscape experience has done a podcast. We cooperated with that to get the word out there that the car is still missing. It's stolen. Um, there's a title dispute. It cannot be exhibited. It cannot be sold without settling this dispute with my client, the insurer. I uh, received a very interesting tip several months ago with somebody who claims they've seen the car. Now, I get tips all the time from artwork and cars and watches that are just way out of left field. You know, husbands ratting out their wives and vice versa, that no basis in reality. But this tip on this car had something that none of them had had before, and it was this individual knew something that only someone who had seen the car would know, and I can't say what that is but I'm getting closer and closer to the possessor. And I cooperated with this uh, recent podcast because I want the possessor to contact me. I want them to say, look, I bought this car. I didn't know it was stolen. And I think that's true. Okay. I think it's true. They didn't know that it was stolen when they, when they acquired it, but the time has come to contact me and say, look, I think I got a problem with the car in my vast collection Let's sit down and work out a deal discreetly and amicably, and I can do that. So, uh, you know, that's, that's where we are. It's the most famous car in the world. There's, there's virtually no doubt about it. When you say a couple of million, I would multiply that. I've had a number of major auction houses tell me they could sell that car for 25 million euros. Bloody hell. It's, who doesn't love the first James Bond car with all those gadgets? There's only one. There were four of them were made. The first one is the one that's missing. The second one was made because the first one was too slow for the fast car scenes in the film. The, the third and fourth ones were made uh, just for publicity. They had no screen time. But there's only one James Bond, Aston Martin, DP216-1. And when you said there that you think that this individual that you're focusing on has a collection of cars, you're failing to tell me that you think he has a collection of thousand cars. 
Oh, I, I, I truly believe that this is not the only car this individual has. I understand there are Ferraris and Lamborghinis that the, there's a regular delivery of every new Ferrari model that comes out and that the car is just sitting amongst hundreds, if not thousands of cars in warehouses that don't get driven, that don't get appreciated, just sitting there. I'm just going to take my jaw up off the ground for that one because, like, what does somebody want all that for? What is all of that? I'm sure you experience it in your line of work, that desire for an individual to possess all these beautiful things and just lock them away. It's when you have so much money, you just don't know what to do with it. So you get a new Ferrari every time there's a new model. You, you see something, you got to have it. You know, the the money is being minted in the back. It's it's just there's so much of it that you can't spend it fast enough. And there are a lot of people out there like this that collect things and don't ask questions or 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 have handlers to go out and look for things for them. So they're not directly involved in the actual acquisition, which is why I believe that this individual didn't know that the car was stolen when he bought it. But he surely knows now. And does money buy happiness with all of that? I have to say, Chris, you need to keep your wits about you, I think, because I get the impression that you're operating in a world that brings you in into an arena of wealthy collectors, private investigators, and maybe some a little bit dubious characters. So I'm sure every time you go out to work, you have to just always make sure that you're, you know, you always have to question everything you're doing. We stopped publishing our addresses uh, because we were getting threats. And actually, we never really received threats until we started handling fraud cases. You know, it's the stolen art cases that have been fine for, for decades, but it's the fraudsters that are particularly uh, angry at, at having their uh, frauds uncovered and uh, getting locked up in prison. But... Um, you know, most high net worth collectors and, and, and dealers are appreciative of what we do because we, like, for example, the car, the instant that the title is cleared on that car and we sign papers, that car will be worth even more. So it makes sense to come to me with these Nazi looted paintings, come to me with the stolen art cases. We can clean them up. You know, we clean them by settling with the families or settling with the original owners or the insurance companies, working out the problems, getting the police off their back, and then they can enjoy their artwork. So, you know, you know, it's, it's not really all that dangerous because I solved these problems for the art world outside of litigation, which is exactly what they want. It's better for me to deal with it than to have some law enforcement knocking on their door and seizing something. That's a lot more embarrassing for them. And maybe the ultimate aim is that these fabulous works of art are put on display for everybody to enjoy. Well, that's true. I mean, I have no qualms about high net worth individuals collecting art that they've worked hard to, to earn their money and they want to hang it on their wall and not share it with anyone else. But, you know, every once in a while, like the James Bond car, I'd love to see that in a museum. Um, you know, there's many things I'd like to see in a museum, but eventually they will get there. They will get there. People die, you can't take it with you. People have tried, but they can't. Well, Chris Marinello, thank you very much for, for your time today. Um, 
if you do get that Aston Martin, come back to me first before you do anything with it. I might just need to upgrade my own wheels. I will. Um, I've been promised to drive, but uh, we'll, we'll see about that. Thanks, Chris. My pleasure. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners, 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEWORLD at manscaped.com. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.